Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Matthew B. Freeman. He's an associate professor at uh, University of Maryland School of Medicine uh, in the microbiology and immunology area. And he has his own research, which we'll get into. And he's also here to uh, participate in the virus book that I'm putting together. So, Matt, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, would tell me about your research. What's that about first? So my research is on coronaviruses. So you're, we're taping this in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. And um, it just so happens that I've been working on coronaviruses since around 2004, when I started my postdoc at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And so there I started on SARS-1, which we now call it SARS-1, or generally called SARS, uh, working on pathogenesis and host factors and viral proteins that affected disease. And then I started at University of Maryland uh, School of Medicine in Baltimore in 2009 when I started my own lab, um, again, still working on SARS. And then in 2012, we worked on uh, MERS coronavirus, which emerged then. And then now um, merging that work into SARS coronavirus 2, where we're trying to study all aspects of therapeutic design, uh, pathogenesis, how the virus works, causes disease, replicates, um, and really trying to understand a bit more about the virus than we already do. Well, I guess to start off with, I have an interesting question. I, you know, I keep hearing that you know SARS-CoV-2 binds to this ACE2 receptor on a cell, and you know, but when I when I look in the literature, I don't literally see a step-by-step, you know, virus approaching the cell uh, and all the entry steps, every single one of them. Do you know if that's been elucidated, or are they just seeing you know, the, the last step, I guess, the ACE2, uh, you know, binding and, and entry. And is it, you know, have they backed it up with electron, uh, you know, microscopy yet? Or what's what's it look like? Oh, yeah. So we have a lot of information about that now. There's really amazing cryo-EM and crystallography pictures of the spike protein on the surface of the virus binding to the ACE2 receptor on cells. There is a lot of understanding now about how the spike protein, which is the surface protein on the virus, that how that um, gets cleaved by surface proteases, um, one called TMPRSS2 or TEMPRS2. There's also a protease called furin, which is important for cleavage of spike as well. And really how that entry mechanism works as the virus gets inside the cell. So we know a bit more about, you know, every one of these, these coronaviruses, every time there's a new one and more people start working on it, we learn a little bit more about how this kind of, all the little tricks that they, that the, these viruses use to get into cells. So um, we certainly do know it binds ACE2, and, and that's important for its entry. And there's actually one of the important ways that we're developing therapeutics. A lot of people are, are doing this where we're looking at drugs and other proteins that can block the entry mechanism of the virus into cells as a, a way to limit its spread inside um, animals and then eventually people. If you would, just mechanically, literally, step by step, what happens when, a, uh, you know, when SARS-CoV-2 approaches a, a cell? Does it have like a tail fiber that brushes against the ACE2 receptor? Like, how does it work step-by-step, step, if, if you don't mind, if you know? Sure. So it's not really a tail fiber per se, like a like phage has these fibers or adenovirus has these um, fibers on the surface. So the coronaviruses have um, what we call spike proteins. They kind of look like 
lollipops on the surface of, the, of a tennis ball. And so these spike proteins have a long stalk uh, as their kind of major arm. They're stuck in the membrane of the, the virion. And then the tip of the this lollipop is called the receptor binding domain. And that's the region that binds to the receptor on cells. And the one of the interesting things about um, SARS coronavirus 2, which SARS coronavirus 1 does not have, is it has a, something called a furin cleavage site, which is a protease uh, that is important for um, a bunch of things inside of a cell, and it cleaves proteins in uh, all aspects of kind of cell biology. But we, what we know is that the cleavage of this spike protein by furin, also by another protein, protease that's called tempers 2 is really important. And so what is seems to be happening is that the spike protein can bind to the ACE2 on the surface of cells that express it. So in your lungs, this is the ciliated epithelial cells in your lungs. These are the ones that they have these long hairs on the surface of the cells that they beat back and forth. And they mix the, their job is to mix around the mucus that your goblet cells, which are right next door, they make in lining your airways. So they keep your airway nice and wet so they don't stick together when you breathe. And only on the surface of the ciliated cells do you see this protein called um, ACE2, angiotensin converting enzyme 2. And so the virus spike protein with this lollipop on the end sticks to the ACE2 on the surface of cells. Right next to it is also on, on the membrane is also this tempers 2 prote uh, protease. And so what we think goes on, and, and we're pretty sure is, is that there's actually two different ways the virus can get into a cell. So once the virus binds to ACE2, it somehow, a really unknown uh, signal, signal event happens and you get internalization of the virus bound to ACE2 internalizing into a vesicle, so a little, a little bleb into the cell. And that fuses to a endosome, which is the, this kind of entry vesicle that is inside of the cell. Um, inside the endosome are a bunch of other proteases. And those proteases can cleave the spike protein, which allows this really large conformational change to occur. And then that shoves the spike protein in this new fusion state into the membrane. And then, then you have kind of like, a, like two soap bubbles mixing together. They fuse their membranes together, and now that releases the genomic content, the genomic RNA of the virus into the cell. That's that's the kind of the standard dogmatic entry mechanism. The other entry, entry way that seems to be also happening at the same time is that when you're at the surface, the virus coordinates with uh, the ACE2 protein. There's also this tempers 2 next door, um, right near it on the membrane. If you get cleavage outside of the cell on, on the surface by the tempers 2 protein, you can actually get fusion right at the membrane. So instead of going through the endosome in that pathway, you get fusion right at the membrane, which allows for the genomic RNA to be released at the, right at the plasma membrane fusion event rather than going through the endosome. So those are kind of the two basic ways that we, the virus gets into the cell. So does the virus first bind to ACE2 and, and how? And then once it does, does it, you know, is there another uh, part of the virus, the virion, close enough to tempers 2? I mean, I would guess it'd have to be within nanometers, you know, tens of nanometers away, like another surface feature. Where do these surface features migrate? Like, you know, between these two receptors or surface features, how do they, feel like physically, literally, how do you imagine that they interact? Yeah, what we know is that if you have a cell that oh, that it does not express ACE2, but, it le but expresses tempers 2, um, you can't really get very good infection. So you need ACE2 as its main receptor. If you have a cell which expresses ACE2 and then also expresses a lot of tempers 2, you can drive the entry 
through the this plasma membrane fusion event rather than going through the endosome. And so there are drugs like hydroxychloroquine, which um, has been in the news a lot at the beginning of this outbreak, which it inactivates the endosomal pathway by affecting the endosome acidification of the endosome. And even in cells that ex- it cells that express both tempers two and uh, ACE two, you can actually uh, still get infection because the virus can. It doesn't need the endosomal pathway. It can only use the membrane fusion pathway by tempers two cleavage. And so what happens on the surface of the cell is that we believe the ACE2 and the tempers 2 are quite close. And so as the viral, the virus spike protein kind of docks and binds to the ACE2 protein, the tempers 2 is right there and it and it can cleave the same, probably the same spike protein that is now docked to ACE2. It could be another spike that's there. There's not evidence yet, I think, that you have to have binding for the cleavage to happen, but it at least has to be really close, so close enough. And there's dozens of spikes on the surface of uh, virion. And so you get this coordinated interaction where it's not really just one spike, but it's multiple spikes binding to multiple ACE2s and, and, and being cleaved at the same time by tempers 2. So all these things are kind of happening at the same space uh, on the surface of a, of a membrane. You know, if I label, I'm just going to label like spike number one is the one that binds to the ACE2. And, you know, spike number two is the one that get you know, get caught up by tempers 2 nearby. Do you think that an interaction with spike two would then transfer, let's say, through the the virions, you know, capsid and affect spike one? Or do you think it literally has to affect the same spike protein in order to cleave it? Or do you think that, again, there's this, this cross capsid action that could happen? Yeah, so there's there's no capsid in here in this virus like uh, like it is in rhino or norovirus where there's like a, you know, a candy shell, this capsid on the outside. Um, this is just a, it's a fluid enveloped virus. So it's a membrane that all these spike proteins are stuck in. Um, There's a couple other proteins on the membrane also, uh, E and M envelope and and membrane protein, but it's, um, there's, there's not a capsid per se. So there isn't, there doesn't seem to be a coordination between the spikes. They all just are kind of fluid and next to each other. And in their direct interactions with the membrane, there's clearly multiple ACE2s that are coordinating the same virion and and clearly multiple tempers twos that are cleaving at the same time. So I think this is all kind of happening um, in more of a, a high affinity, but also high avidity. So you get multiple spikes binding at the same time that coordinate this interaction. Hmm. Okay. So it, you think it takes uh, multiple spikes in order to have a successful entry? And, you know, if you compare the, the endosomal version versus this, you know, the outer membrane fusion version, which one appears to be less energetically, you know, or easier to do, I guess, or more likely to happen? So I think there's, I would say there's almost definitely has to be multiple spikes that engage. Um, there's going to be some on and off rate between the spike and the ACE2 interaction. And that off rate is is high enough that, you know, the, the virus could, you know, fall off basically if there's not more than one ACE2 and more than one spike binding to each other. And so, and also when you enter the cell, there's a lot of other cellular proteins on the, on the cytoplasmic side that cause this curvature of the membrane. And you need this integration uh, and signaling, basically, of the from the ACE2 to the inside of the cell that there's something there to pull and to cause this imagination. And so there's clearly going to be multiple ACE2s that are going that are ongoing at the same time for these spike interactions. That they're that it, that the cell knows there's something to pull on. If that makes any sense, um, and to and bring into the cell. Whether one is more important than the other, you know, it's really not known. I, I will say that. If you have a mouse in this case where you, this was all done for SARS-1, but if you have a mouse that doesn't express ACE2 at all, it's deleted for the ACE2 gene, you have no infection at all. But if you have a mouse that's, that has the mouse ACE2 there, 
but you delete uh, the tempers 2 protease, you still get infection and disease. So the ACE2 is clearly the major binding partner. There's also some carbohydrate linkages there that seem to be important, but the, that they kind of enhance the binding. But the tempers 2 clearly plays some role and it's actually a really good therapeutic target now where there are drugs called, um, there's a drug called Camistat and a drug called Nefamistat that target and inhibit ACE, uh, sorry, the tempers 2 protease that are being used in, in vitro and in vivo in animals and clinical trials to see how well it could work against uh, SARS-2 and COVID-19. Of the various cell types we have in our body, you know, from what I've heard, a lot of them express ACE2, but you know, how many express tempers 2 and in a close enough range to the ACE2 receptor that they could be candidates for entry. Maybe it's better to, to target tempers too. Maybe it's expressed less often or less cell types. Yeah, absolutely. So there certainly is a lot of a lot of cells that express ACE2. This clearly is a respiratory virus and all the coronaviruses are, I guess, other than feline coronavirus, which is a gut infection. And so there are, you know, the ACE2, uh, tempers 2 is pretty universally expressed in a lot of places. Um, ACE2 is a little more restricted. So all of these things kind of go together in the way that they're expressed in the in the types of cells there's there's been a lot of single cell sequencing going on where they're looking for cells that express um, one or the other either tempers 2 or ace 2 or, or together and they usually are generally expressed together in most places the heart doesn't express tempers 2 very much it expresses a lot of ace 2 because ace 2 is involved in blood pressure regulation there are some cells that express more tempers 2 like kidney that have less ACE2, but in the in the nasal epithelia, in the lung, in the some parts of the gut, in the ileum and, and the colon, they express both ACE2 and SAR and uh, tempers 2 And so, you know, there are potential other potential sites of infection in these other organs and locations. It's not only these proteins that allow for infection, though. So there's other host factors that are are still being mapped that are really that seem to be important for entry of the virus and replication that can also play a role. And so that, that you know, we don't really see a lot of infection of, of SARS-1 in the heart. It was never really something that was seen. For SARS-2 now, we certainly are seeing some uh, more heart uh, issues in patients than SARS-1. Now, that could be that the people that are being infected by the virus, there's a much larger population, a larger number. So you're seeing people with other comorbidities and other pre-existing conditions that allow this to happen more than others. But um, the other aspect of this is, is that the spike protein of SARS-2 binds to ACE2 at a, uh, about tenfold better than SARS-1 does, 10 to 100-fold, depending on the kind of assay. And so even if you have low-level ACE2 expression, you might be able to get the virus in to cells that SARS-1 couldn't infect because just the binding kinetics weren't very good, where now SARS-2 can infect well. So all of these things are still being figured out at a I mean, all this is done at, at the in vitro level in a petri dish. Um, we're still trying to figure out what this means in vivo, both in humans and in animals, to figure out how this differential expression of the receptors and also how the different affinity of the of the spike with the receptors differs uh, between the different coronaviruses and, and how this really affects disease. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And you mentioned there could easily be circumstance where multiple variants are you know, in various stages of fusing to a cell. Do you think that um, all it takes is one virion to enter a cell and you've got infection? Or do you think it may take coordination of multiple virions? And if so, what kind of disease state would you expect the cell to have versus one virion infecting it? One virion can easily infect a cell and cause and replicate. If you get multiple virions in a cell, you, you bump up the amount of, of genome that you start with. So you, you probably get more virus faster. 
but certainly one one virus can go into a cell and cause disease uh, and replicate and, and make a million particles, you know, quite easily. So I, I don't think there there isn't a requirement for multiple virions to be in the same cell. Do you think it can happen, or is it you know what if it's like sperm and egg model? As soon as one virion enters, the membrane changes in such a way that no more virions are allowed in. Has that been looked yeah. at, or is that not really important? Um, yeah, we, that's been looked at. I mean, that isn't an issue. There, there are certain other viruses. Um, I think pox viruses do that, where they they turn on some kind of anti-pox effect, where one virus goes in and then it doesn't let the other ones go in um, by affecting the receptors on the surface. That doesn't seem to be true for coronas, as far as I know. One of the interesting things that coronaviruses do, though, is that when they do bind to ACE2, they internalize the, vi- the, the receptor with them to go into the endosome. So if you have a lot of virus on the surface and you're getting multiple virions or a lot of, of virions in the cell, you can actually reduce the amount of ACE2 that's on your surface to um, basically reduce the function of ACE2 in the, in the lungs in particular. And ACE2 is involved in repair of lung tissue. So one of the ideas is that in cells where there's a lot of, of virus and um, potentially a lot of spike that is being secreted, you can actually get a bigger reduction in ACE2 on the surface of cells. And maybe that is a part of the effect of, of how the virus causes so much disease. And so the, all of that was been predicted and, and demonstrated for SARS-1 that at some level that's important for SARS-2 as well. But clearly the virus is causing damage to the cells it infects and then altering the immune response around it to the neighboring cells. And so that's all part of this pathology that we're trying to understand both in animals and in humans. So what do you think the cell is sensing? Why is it allowing the virions to enter? Do you think there's any discernment as to, okay, this is, uh, you know, just let it in because it hit this receptor regardless? Or again, is there discernment on any level? Yeah, not, no, no difference that we know of, but that we're ACE2 you know, can't really decide what it binds to, and then it can't really decide how to transit that signal to the cell for internalization. That's certainly not known. The cell has a whole host of other ways of protecting itself from viruses that are kicked on once the it, it recognizes that a virus comes in, but it doesn't seem to be at the level of entry. Um, it seems to be at a level post that after there's all of these innate immune factors that sense a virus is there um, or not there and, and try to fight it. Mm, okay. How long does it take? I don't know if it's even observable, but how long does it take for this, uh, you know, once the first moment of binding occurs to an ACE2 receptor or tempers 2, how long does this whole process take until the, you know, the virus is inside of a cell? Once it gets inside, I mean, it's a matter of minutes from basically binding to where the genome is in the cytoplasm, 15, 20 minutes maximum, um, probably faster than that. That's pretty much as fast as we can see it. But I I would bet on a population-wide, it's you know there's there's definitely faster cells that bring in the virus and and then allow it to get into the cytoplasm. And then how long do you think the delay is to a uh, you know replication in the first lytic event? You know, once the cell is infected, you're saying it takes minutes, and then how long till the you know a lytic event occurs in that cell? And do you think there's any coordination, any latency where enough cells have to be infected, and then maybe there's a uh, cell-to-cell communication that coordinates a lytic event, or do they seem to just happen one you know? One after another, if cell A is infected at this moment, you know, four to six minutes later or an hour later, it, it you know, lyses and cell B happened a minute later. So probably a minute later, it'll lyse. Or is there any, uh, again, any coordination? And is the, the period between the, the, the lytic events uh, prescribed? Do you know anything about it? So there's certainly some viruses that have latency, you know, that's the, the wording you're using, where virus can basically go silent for a while and then it can be reactivated. So that's not there's no latency in coronaviruses. Um, there's no active lysis either, where 
there's not a, a factor in the cell in the virus that is that that causes the cell to burst like a a lytic event like beige or other some other coronaviruses do or, or other types of viruses. Basically, the virus goes into the cell and it starts making more copies of itself. It doesn't want to kill the cell super fast because it wants to crank out as much as it can of making copies and making new, new virions. So, you know, let's call it, let's say 10 minutes for the virus from it binding to ACE2 to getting it out of an endosome. It takes about an hour or so before you can start detecting viral RNA. It probably happens faster than that, but we can't see the first few rounds of that uh, occurring. And then you have translation of the mRNAs that are made. Coronaviruses make these things called subgenomic RNAs, which are kind of cool ways of, of viruses to make new RNAs in the coronavirus family. They have this interesting way of, of kind of hopping the, the genome to um, add the very five prime end of the genome onto every single one of the RNAs that is there. It kind of acts as a promoter for translation. And then once translation happens, you start making your spike and your envelope and your M protein, which get trafficked through the ER and Golgi. They grab the genome, which has been, um, it's being made in uh, these in this is called double membrane vesicles, which are these uh, literally two membranes around in a vesicle that the virus induces by some of its replicase proteins to, to form in a cell. The new data actually shows that there's RNA inside these vesicles. No one really, no one really saw this before. It was always predicted, but no one really knew if it was true. Um, so the, the virus kind of hides out its replication machinery inside these vesicles. And then it has a pore on the membrane of the DMV that allows the RNA out. And once it comes out into the cytoplasm, it gets immediately wrapped up by the nucleocapsid protein, kind of look like a histone or chromatin factor that you think of in DNA in the, nu in the nucleus. And then this, the newly forming virions, as the, as the structural proteins are leaving the ER and the Golgi, they coordinate with the, the N protein, the nucleocapsid wrapped around the genome to internalize this new virion into essentially a vesicle that's going to leave the cell. And you get a couple, you have multiple virions fused into this vesicle. So it kind of looks like a bag of marbles. And then that releases, that fuses to the membrane and then releases the virions to the outside of the cell. And so oh, okay. the virus doesn't want the cell to die. It wants to be able to make as much of these virions as possible while overtaking as, all the machinery in the cell. So eventually you do get death, but it, it doesn't want it to happen super fast. It wants to be able to crank out as much virus as possible. So the cell will start uh, releasing viruses in bundles, but it won't necessarily have a, it won't necessarily die or kill itself from apoptosis for a while. Right. So that, that's kind of the same way that the virus, the, the so the kind of soap bubble imagery, that you have the same soap bubble from the inside of the cell now fusing to the membrane. And that fusion event now kind of spills out the virions outside of the cell. And so now they're available outside of the cell. And in, in, if you're in the lung, you're in this kind of mucus layer. And then you get signaling, you get it, sorry, infection of the you know, neighboring cells that are now hopefully for these for the virus side receptive to being infection because they have ACE2 and all the other factors you need. So what all right, what factors would then cause a cell to uh, you know to kill itself, to undergo apoptosis, or to be attacked by uh, our immune system? Yeah, this is the cool part about viruses, right? You know, you can call them nature cell biologists, people call them nature's bioterrorists. You there there are all different ways uh, that viruses across all the families have to manipulate the cell to allow for them to do their job from the virus standpoint, which is to basically make more copies of itself. And so this is the stuff that we work on in lab where all of us, you know, basically working on these viruses from all kinds of families, try to figure out how it is that the virus goes and replicates in the cell because the cell has all this other machinery that is tries to shut the virus down at the same time that the virus is trying to replicate itself. And so 
it's this kind of back and forth. There's a you know, Harmeen Malik and uh, calls this a viral arms race. And so there's this this you know constant evolution you know over over long periods of time of the virus making proteins that can um, basically break the signaling events that happen in a cell that the cell tries to fight back against the virus with. And so one of the major proteins in cells that viruses that that cells have is called interferon. It is at the bottom of this pathway that is turned on when the cell recognizes that there's a virus in the cell. And so one of the major ways the virus knows that there, or the cell knows there's a virus there is by detecting its RNA. So the, the cell knows what its RNA is supposed to look like. And it if it detects other RNA that's there that know, that doesn't look like it's an RNA because it has different uh, beginning or an end, or it has different proteins on it, um, it can turn on the signaling event that turns on interferon. And then the cool thing about the interferon part is that it then gets secreted from cells. It can bind back on the same cell or on neighboring cells. And it's this alarm signal that tells everybody in the neighborhood, hey, there's a virus here. And so in, even in the uninfected cells, when interferon binds the receptor, the interferon receptor on the surface of cells, and then it starts a huge cascade of signaling events inside the cell that allows for the cell to turn on these things called interferon-stimulated genes or ISGs. And these are hundreds of proteins that now basically prepare the cell for the inv a new invading virus. And so that happens in the cells that are already making the virus or the virus is infecting. And SARS and other viruses, but in particular, you know, SARS and the coronas have proteins that block these pathways that the cell is trying to turn on to tell everybody that there's a virus there. So it blocks the interferon signaling pathway. It blocks the pathway that chews up the viral RNA. It blocks a bunch of kinases and nuclear import factors that allow for, that would be normally turned on for the cell to recognize there's a virus there and to turn on all these interferon simulated genes. And so there's this kind of back and forth that goes on all the time when viruses affect cells of, of what things the, the cell is responding to, what the virus is making, and basically how the virus can hold out long enough to make more copies of itself. And then the cell trying to hold out long enough before it dies or it gives a death signal to itself to try to kill the virus. And at some point, the cell kind of you know gives up the ghost and says, okay, I'm going to turn on apoptosis and kill myself for the sake of the, of the organism if it's in an animal. And, and so you have this kind of back and forth tug between the virus and the host about all these different signaling events and factors that go on all the time. So it seems like there's some deliberate signaling from the viruses inside of an infected cell. And then there's also some counter signaling by the cell itself, you know, the cell itself saying, help, I'm infected. And then the virus is putting out material that uh, will, I guess, make niche, I guess, niche construct other cells or prepare them or regulate them in such a way that they're ready for, for infection. So it's not, yeah. So it, we, I don't think there's ever, for the coronas, I mean, it, there there doesn't seem to be a protein that's secreted by the cells from the virus to then kind of sensitize other cells to infection. Um, but there certainly is protein that's secreted by cells to signal other cells that to kind of a, to, to, as a danger signal to make sure that they are prepared for kind of the coming onslaught of the virus that's going to, you know, in their, in their vicinity. Oh, okay. I, I was going to ask you, how are these, um, these instructions packaged as extracellular vesicles that, you know, the cell gives off, is that how the cell does its signaling? And if the virus is doing signaling, what, what does it look like? What comes out of the cell that's different? From the cell side, the virus secretes interferon, which is a protein. So it goes, it gets made, and then you know, just like a normal secreted protein gets the ER and Golgi. Really, at the same time, the virus is trying to make itself as well. 
and then it gets secreted through just a normal secretion vesicle that uh, leaves the cell and and goes um, and floats around outside of it to the neighboring cells. And so the you have those. You have also um, things called exosomes, which are uh, little vesicles that fuse and uh, that are released from the me- from the membrane of the cell. And there's been shown in, in especially in the placenta and other or- in other cells where you get secretion of these exosomes. So it really like kind of a, a, a secreted vesicle that has, uh, which been shown in there to be a protein, but also microRNAs. And those can then fuse to neighboring cells and then bring those microRNAs from one cell to the other. And when those microRNAs get into cells, then they do what microRNAs do, which is then bind to RNA and then turn on or turn off genes in the neighboring cells. So they kind of act like these extra signaling molecules that um, are alerting, uh, can can affect the other cell's ability to respond, usually in a in an antiviral way. So it makes it turns on proteins that are important for protection of, of virus, so kind of like interferon does. For the coronaviruses, there doesn't seem to be, at least that's been shown yet, any kind of definitive signaling or, or, or protein or, or RNA that's secreted from the infected cell to the neighboring cells that allows for alterations of the neighboring cells, other than really trying to limit the amount of interferon that's being produced from the infected cell. But when these when these substances are released, they're packaged in exosomes or they're packaged in some sort of extracellular vesicle, right? Right, exactly. Yeah, for the exosome side, yeah. The, the protein side, they're just released from the cell like a normal secreted protein would be. Oh, so the cell can release just naked proteins that are oh, absolutely. going out yeah. to the interstitial. Yep, exactly. And they have enough survivability that they can enter into other cells still? Or they're, 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 their purpose is not to enter into other cells, but then they're picked up by outside factors, you know, the immune system, et cetera. So for interferon, so then there's um, there are interferon receptors that are on the surface of other cells. And so just kind of like ACE2 is binding to virus, you have all of these other proteins. All the, the, the cells are covered in proteins that are sensing the external environment to get external sig- signaling or, or stimuli, whether it's growth factors, whether it's interferon and, and uh, immune signaling proteins, all kinds of things. And so the interferon will find its cognate receptor, so this interferon receptor on the neighboring cells. And then once that binding happens, then you have a signaling event that goes inside of the cell to turn on all of these interferon-stimulated genes in the neighboring cells. So there's a huge kinase pathway that gets turned on when interferon or different types of interferon are bind to different interferon receptors on the neighboring cells. Okay. Why do you think that, uh, you know, for instance, SARS-CoV-2 has such a long period of time between initial exposure and, uh, you know, pathogenicity? It seems like, you know, several days, it could be, uh, you know, it could be longer, maybe up to two weeks. Why this latency period versus, you know, a few hours? Uh, so you have a lot of things going on at the same time. So SARS infects, it just infects a cell. One, it can start. It can start replicating. Um, you have this kind of arms race going back and forth. So the cell trying to diminish the amount of replication versus the the virus trying to replicate as much as it can. So you have that kind of level of, of back and forth going on at the very early stages of infection. The virus is able to replicate without really being detected. So it expresses all of these uh, interference antagonists and other host factor um, antagonists that kind of manipulate the cells that infects to allow for um, it to be it to hide out. So you kind of you don't feel sick early on potentially because the virus is able to manipulate your immune response, which is the thing that makes you feel sick. And so if it diminishes this early response, you the virus can essentially hide out for a while 
uh, replicating without being noticed and without the your body, your your lungs knowing the virus is there. And then once you uh, oh, you get this overwhelming response because now all of a sudden the virus, the the host, your your lungs and your immune response realizes that oh no, there's a ton of virus here. What's going on? And so it makes this huge immune response in um, back at the virus, and that actually causes more disease than you would normally see if it was a kind of a balanced response. So we call it a dysregulated immune response when uh, the, the, the host recognizes that there's all this virus there and it didn't know about it. And so th those early stages take, can take a while for the virus to go and to take off. So you have kind of both ways of this. You have the virus kind of replicating slow if there's all these host factors that are slowing it down and you have it hiding out for a while before the, the you get this big damage response that occurs in the lungs after there's virus there that's uh, replicating and, and kind of going crazy. Hmm. So what, um, I mean, what other breakthroughs in, of understanding of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2 do you feel like uh, either you're close on or you're seeing other scientists are, are investigating? Is it, uh, you know, figuring out exactly all the possible sites that could confound the spike protein or, like what, you know, what are like the really heavy areas of research right now? So there's, I have to say that the, the SARS-2 research is going at the, at, a remarkable pace. And so I would say every day there's new insights that are coming. From the therapeutic standpoint, one of the kind of interesting things is that there's a, been a huge amount of mapping of antibodies that bind to the spike protein. And so there's a lot there. We know the crystal structure of the spike protein. There's been a lot of crystal structures of antibodies bound to spike. And we now, we know different types of different sets of antibodies, different in, you know, individual monoclonal antibodies that, are, that recognize different aspects of the spike protein to block infection. Um, so in that sense, from the kind of antibody side, it's gonna be interesting to start combining these antibodies together to kind of get dual effects and dual ways of blocking the virus. So the, the virus can't just evolve away from one, it can now needs, it, it needs different aspects of its response to, uh, respond, to come back from. I think the really the kind of remarkable thing to me just kind of broadly is that um, with the number of people that are affected by this virus, we're seeing really a huge variation in response of disease. I find that to just be amazing. Um, it's all the things that we we talk about that when a, a naive population is infected by a virus, you see this huge variation in disease. And just to see it play out, I find to be absolutely remarkable. Um, everything from just losing your, you know, either not having any 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 symptoms at all, so completely asymptomatic, to people losing their sense of smell and taste because you get infection of the epithelia in the nasal cavity in your nose. And then um, what we think is going on is you get death of the, of the cells around the neurons. The neurons themselves aren't dying, but it's the, it's the cells that wrap around the neurons seem to be dying from the infection. And so that eliminates the signaling capability. So eventually the smell and taste comes back, but it takes a while for these cells to regenerate. So you have that at the kind of really kind of easy uh, to get over phase, all the way through people having super severe, you know, it's being obviously a lethal infection, but really widespread organ damage in, in across the, across people. I find that to be really kind of remarkable on the kind of the pathogenesis side of this, that this virus, which is really quite similar to a seasonal virus that gives you a cold, all of a sudden, you know, is able to cause this wide spectrum of disease. I find that to be really amazing. And it's really one of the things we're trying to figure out in the lab is, is how do these other comorbidities that are involved with, that all of us have internally, just the immune response differences or, or physiological differences, how do those comorbidities affect the disease progression? And can we understand that from in an animal and how does that reflect it 
what we see in humans. So one of the things we're doing in my lab is, and we did this for MERS as well, is we're looking at diabetes and obesity and other comorbidity factors in humans, or in this case, mice, that can exacerbate disease and, and to see how, what it is about being diabetic or what it is about being obese or what it is about being immunosuppressed that alters the trajectory of this disease. And so that, from the animal side, that's really one of the major focal points of the lab now. And, and the other thing is, you know, there's been a huge amount of therapeutics being developed, both things that are being repurposed from uh, FDA approved drugs that are on the shelf, as well as new drugs being developed. And we're doing a lot of repurposed drug screening now and testing in animals um, with a, a bunch of collaborators, as well as um, as trying to develop new drugs in the lab that target um, host factors that we that are involved in multiple viruses for replication. And so it, it really, uh, all of it is quite phenomenal to see all happening at the same time. And um, the goal from all of this, one is to develop therapeutics for SARS-2, but for two is to develop therapeutics for a wide, uh, wide variety of viruses that are broadly applicable and broadly antiviral so that the next virus that comes out as an epidemic, things that we don't even know exist yet, we have therapeutics on the shelf for them. And, and I think we've been, we're limited in the amount of therapeutics we have and uh, for these emerging viruses, and we'd have to be better prepared next time. What do you think happens or has been happening to, you know, SARS-CoV-2? I mean, if I label the first person that got it originally as number one, and they gave it to number two, and they gave it to number three, how many passaging events do you think guess on average, the average person will experience at this point? Like if I get it tomorrow from someone, you know, will I be number 13 or 50 or 80? Like what's, what's your guess in the passaging chain? And, and how do you think the virus would have changed by now or has changed by now? Or if not, you know, by passaging number 11 or 500, how do you think it'll change? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, I mean, I think if you got it now, it really kind of depends on where you are. Uh, you know, if we're in the U.S., we're probably, I don't know how many people it's gone through before it's got to you. That's an interesting question. Probably, I, I, really, I couldn't know. I don't know if it'd be 50, it'd be, it'd be 500. I don't, I don't know where we would be yet. But we, we certainly have a lot of data on the sequence of the virus and how it has changed uh, since it was initially identified at the end of 2019 um, in those first people in the fish market in, in Wuhan. And we know a couple of things so far. One is that there is this, there's a mutation that's in the spike protein, which seems to be important for transmission. And it has this one, one amino acid change has, has allowed the virus to, it seems to allow the virus to transmit better between people. So that's certainly there. The, the really dramatic thing for me the, is that from the very beginning, and it kind of says something interesting, I think, about where the virus, um, the timing of where we're seeing the virus, but is that from the very beginning, this virus was replicating very well in humans. So right inside, you know, when you, if you go all the way back to the December 30th, where we first identified or first heard about there being um, this fish market in, in Wuhan that was, um, had these cases of pneumonia. Um, if you look at the virus that was in those people that were infected early on, it really is not that different than what we're seeing now. So the virus doesn't have, hasn't had to mutate a huge amount for it to replicate and, and spread between people. And so what I think that means is that, and we've been saying this early on, and, and I think it's it's still now true, is that the virus had clearly been replicating for a while in people before we knew it. It doesn't have to, it doesn't mean it's replicating for years, but it clearly was replicating for you know weeks to months where it jumped from animals to people and then it went around uh, at least a small population, at least from person to person before it, we really knew it was there because it replicates, you know, it doesn't, it didn't have to adapt from people 
to from animals to people at least or from person to person from this early stages to spread really well and what we know from SARS-1 and from MERS is that there has to be these uh, evolving events that occur from animals to people for the virus to for these viruses to replicate and be able to transmit very well from person to person so there are, are multiple events that have to happen in the genome of the virus, especially in the spike protein and the way it engages ACE2 for it to go from animal replication to human replication. And so there's it's kind of a slow burn from animals to people going back and forth as it as it mutates a bit before it really can take off in the human population. Even once it goes from person to person early on, it doesn't replicate that well, at least in, in SARS-1 and for MERS, and before it can transmit really well and replicate really, very well in humans. But this virus, at least the, the first steps that we knew about from these patients in, in Wuhan, it's uh, replicated quite well. And so it clearly had been in humans for a bit before we knew about it from the beginning. Um, since then, there really hasn't been a huge amount of mutations. I mean, there, there are mutations that occur. You can find them by sequence. You can identify these small variants and look at them on phylogenetic trees to differentiate them. But there isn't at least a, um, a pathological difference that you know, the viruses early on caused one type of disease and now they cause something different. There doesn't seem to be that trajectory yet. We haven't, we haven't really achieved that um, even with the number of people that this virus has gone through. So it seems like viruses, seem, seem well, a lot of them seem to uh, you know, get out there, maybe have an outbreak and then kind of uh, fade away. What, why do you think that is? Do you think that a lot of viruses, um, I guess they become more commensal with their hosts or you know, why well, do you think, think that it, is? And, and viruses we haven't really yeah. been able to fix. No, I think every virus has its own way, right? I mean, I, um, I, I, I tell all the grad students that, you know, that in the lab, um, when they're looking for projects and when they're worrying about their career, I tell them that everybody finds their way through this and, and everybody will be okay. I, I think viruses have the same kind of thing for these emerging viruses, at least. Some of them come in and they burn bright. They replicate incredibly well. They cause a super amount of disease in people and then they go away. And so, I mean, a perfect example is, is SARS-1. So, SARS-1 emerged in, in late 2002 and 2003, and then it went away in nine months. And one of the really dramatic differences in the disease between SARS-1 and SARS-2, even though they're really very similar viruses, at least genetically, is that almost everyone with SARS-1 that got infected had symptoms within, within 48 hours. And so you, it came into your lungs, you got really sick, you had symptoms, you know, regular cough and cold symptoms, and then you were identified as being positive uh, as having symptoms, and you either got quarantined at home or you got sick enough that you went to a hospital and you got quarantined there. With SARS-2, its trajectory is quite different. We know now that there is you know, five to 10 days after you're exposed before you have symptoms, if you're, gonna have, if you're gonna have symptoms. And during that period, probably around day five to 10 in that range, uh, you can be shedding virus, but you don't know it. And that's, run, that's the reason that this virus took off and is spreading around so easily. And why everyone's supposed to wear masks when they go outside and around people is because you can be infected and be shedding virus, but not know you're sick because your body hasn't, hasn't presenting with any symptoms yet. And so just those two viruses, they're in the same family. They're very similar. This dramatic difference in the clinical presentation early on that differentiates them. And so SARS-1 didn't go away because we had some magical drug or antibody or vaccine for it in those nine months. It went away because of really good public health measures that everybody who was infected had symptoms. And then you shut down the connection and, and the transmission events because those people were quarantined. For SARS-2, you know, the, the shutdowns, at least in the US, were the goal was to do that, where you eliminate this transmission. And then all the shutdowns and the quarantines were measures were 
basically reversed pretty quickly and there was still a lot of virus out there. And so from the virus standpoint is to find people to infect and replicate and, and spread. And so that's viruses do what viruses do. And that's what it did. Well, I mean, you have the case of Sweden and then in Europe, various places shut down and in some there may be a, you know, somewhat of a resurgence and some not. I don't know. It seems like it's not just uh, the one issue, but there's more to it. You know, if you look also, let's say at Ebola too, it seems to have peaked and then gone away. And uh, I don't know, in Africa, I don't know if there was uh, definitely strict conditions met to stop its spread. So do you think there's any other method of action besides just human containment that slows down the viruses or changes their nature? Oh, sure. I mean, Ebola is a very different virus. Ebola has to be spread by bloodborne transmission. So you're, the way of transmitting Ebola is much different than you're transmitting a respiratory virus. You know, every virus has its own way of spreading and its own issues of the ways that are causing disease. And I think that, you know, for Ebola, you had the, the we know that, that there was, that it's bloodborne. We know that if you limit contact with contaminated blood, you can l- eliminate infection. We know that during Ebola, there was uh, burial practices where they bathe the body as a kind of religious ritual. And that led to, leads to transmission. So once that was blocked, you eliminate those avenues of transmission. All of those issues are, are different between a bloodborne virus, a mosquito-borne virus, a uh, respiratory virus. You know, so there's different reasons why the viruses go away uh, for all these conditions. I, I think what we're seeing in Europe now is that they're actually, you know, all of these, there's a huge number of, of surge of cases all over Europe right now because the transmission event, you know, they, they weren't totally blocked. And, and while they released quarantine and they tried to have all these measures of protection, it wasn't really able to eliminate the virus completely. And so when people stop wearing masks and they stop social distancing, you can now transmit respiratory viruses quite easily, like we do in the winter when we get a cold. And so we're, we're seeing all this transmission all over the Europe now. And they're now starting to have um, lockdowns in in France and England and, and Italy and all the other places where they tried to re, you know basically reduce these measures you know in the last couple of months. And in the U.S., we're a perfect example where you know there's been most of the country now has some level of release of of quarantine measures and um, and distancing. There's mask mandates either either allowing masks to be worn and encouraging it or encouraging people not to wear masks depending on what state you're in. I think what we're going to see is in these in these states in the United States where there is uh, hotspots now, we're going to see that there is going to be a huge increase in, in these hotspots over the winter where where people are you know mixing together and not, not distancing and not wearing masks and not doing kind of the good public health measures that are being encouraged. So, I mean, in the context of, of different virus families, every one of these has its own way of spreading and, and you have to eliminate those transmission dynamics to um, slow them down. And we certainly haven't been very good in the United States about doing this. Well, very good, Matt. What's the best way to find out more about your research? Where can people go? Uh, sure. You can Google me. You can go to the University of Maryland website and, and search for Matt Freeman. We have a little page there that kind of says what we do. And uh, um, I'm also on Twitter. Uh, you can search Matt Freeman there. So um, I'm around a couple of places. And uh, if you need to find me, uh, I'm, I'm here for answering questions. Excellent. Well, Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 
This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.